Welcome to the Starfire Codes podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Amy Pitchell. We're here today with Mike Donio. Mike Donio is a senior scientist with experience in biochemistry, molecular biology, and biotechnology. He was wrongfully terminated due to a jab mandate, and he's been speaking out ever since. Mike founded Science Defined in order to help people break down and understand scientific concepts. Mike Donio, part one. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. This is great. It's great talking with you. Um, so tell us a bit about your story, about the way all of this unfolded and, and how you got here. Yeah, sure. Um, it's been quite an incredible journey and um, seems to not want to end, I guess. <laughs> but it's been quite a... Um, so, you know, I was... For 20 years, I was a research scientist in the lab. I studied virology. I studied um, most recently oncology. I was working at a biotech company in the immuno-oncology space. So I was developing antibodies to treat cancer. I was a senior scientist. And, um, you know, COVID hit. And um, I'd always been, just I guess, different, like I'd always been someone who asked a lot of questions, very much a skeptic. I Even going back to my days in... Uh, virology. So my first job was in an HIV lab, and that brought on a whole lot of questions and a whole lot of researching. But um, fast forward, you know, I was, I had been in industry most of my career, and I was working for this biotech company, and COVID hit, and they rolled out a, a mandate, a jab mandate, and I, um, for a number of reasons, declined to comply with it. They rejected my religious exemption and effectively just let me go. And so there, there I was with, uh, you know, all of this great experience as a scientist, but uh, no job and effectively no career because nobody really in the industry wants to, you know, they can't understand why you wouldn't, why you would decline to take the jab, why you, why anybody wouldn't think to just just do it i even had recruiters say to me like what you know it's common sense you should just do it and i said well no i i'm a scientist i took the time to research it and came to a really informed decision in my opinion and that's why i didn't do it. i do i you know but there are a lot of people that just didn't understand it so it made it very difficult to have any kind of path getting back into that. And I kind of quickly decided like, I, I don't really even want to be doing that anyway. Like I'm really almost better off being outside of that. It's, it's been a lot very much freeing and, and kind of liberating that because there's a lot of issues with science and with, with industry, pharma and biotech. And that I just couldn't, I mean, I, I, I couldn't not see cause they were just, becoming very blatant to me over time. And I was coming to realize that I wasn't going to be able to do much on the inside to to impact that. You know, there's a lot of people that acknowledge that there's problems, but they just think that, you know, we can just fix this or that, but there's no incentive to fix anything. So nothing ever does get fixed. And I mean, and then we have COVID and we see the, we see the 
the the outcome of the system where we make a lot of really bad decisions off of really really horrible science if you can even call it that just um, so explain so, to us some of the um, some of the realizations that you were having at the time. Um, you know, you're going through all of this. Um, you 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 must have been, um, you know, just up against a wall trying to figure out what to do, and and all of this. You know, having having this presented to you as this obstacle to even keep your job, your livelihood, your you know your your entire world together, and then having to pivot so quickly into you know a different scenario where you know you you don't know what you're up against and and everyone is telling you something that you know is wrong so you know how do you navigate that yeah it was uh it was pretty challenging i mean it's still it pretty much entirely kind of flipped my my and my family's life upside down i think it was solely because my my wife has was and has been incredibly supportive and so have my kids that I was able to even consider such a decision. Um, but I, you know, it was one of those things where I think once I came to the decision, I, I knew that there was kind of no going back and I, it, it, you know, and I have no regrets to this day. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was, and still is, I mean, in a lot of ways, like, there's a lot of uncertainty. I had to carve out a pretty much entirely new path. I spent 20 years doing one thing. I went to graduate school and, you know, and now here I am. And all of that is seemingly, I mean, I'm not going to say for nil. It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not a scientist or I'm not, <laughs> you know, that I'm just throwing it away. But I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, okay, you know, it, it's it's a significant challenge. And that's why I think I, I can understand why so many people, it's hard to conceptualize when you've been doing one thing for so long. Okay, what do I do now? You know, I can't even um, imagine like I'm going to try to do something else and I'm going to create something and a whole new career path or whatever from scratch and find a new way. Like most people... I, I get it. It's it's very difficult. And then on top of that, to figure out, like, how am I going to make ends meet or, you know, so I, I get it. But for me, I think I understood all along that there absolutely was a choice. I saw from my research, um, there was a big component of my, my faith and spirituality that factored into it. And I, I just felt like that was what I had to do. And I just... I stuck to it. And I mean, I've connected with a lot of incredible people along the way, like yourself. And um, it, it's been really a rewarding journey. And I, I've had a lot of time to explore a lot of things. And, um, you know, like I said, I've always questioned a lot about science. Um, and I've been able to kind of explore more of that since I've not been part of the system. So what are some of the realizations that you've had, you know, since you've left the system and, and you've been um, kind of coming to grips with what the situation is and, and what you were going to do in the interim? You know, what were some of the, the things that you were thinking and noticing as this was happening? Well, 
certainly with respect to to COVID, I mean, just seeing how, I mean, I had experience with getting drugs into clinical trials and things more, more on the kind of preclinical side, but I had some familiarity with the process and watching things unfold and how so many things were kind of skirted and, and just, you know, it was really, maybe not as surprising, but I mean, still to some extent, like just to see how they, the system was abused to ram things through and use, um, you know, the whole idea that there was this pandemic, which I think is arguable, um, to push all these public policy measures and then the treatments and the jabs and all of this stuff on people. I mean, it, it was a really hard realization that science could be used for such an end. I mean, I knew throughout my career as I learned and worked with different technologies and things that I always had in my mind that this is something that's, you know, a lot of scientists get kind of captivated by the technology and the stuff. And they, I, I always feel like they struggle to see that, that, what can be used for potentially very good can also be used for very evil means if you, you know, but I always kind of tried to keep myself in check with that and, you know, and have the a sense of humility that this is stuff that can really be used for, for potentially good. I don't even know anymore, but certainly for bad. And we saw that unfold quite spectacularly. Um, and then just as I thought about more about what I what I observed throughout my my career, I mean, there were things, especially at my last stop, that I, I still can't even talk about yet because I'm in the midst of a legal challenge, but just things that still to this day just blow my mind, uh, you know, that they were able to occur and the impacts that they had. You know, you're going into clinical trials on on real people um, and the stuff that goes on and that is allowed to go on is it's, it's mind boggling. So is there any part of that that you can share or are you um, prohibited from discussing that right now? Um, let's see. I, I have not wanted to share about it just because I didn't want it to, conflict with and you know so i'm trying to mount and i've been trying and i haven't it's not looking terribly good but i'm not quite giving up yet but i've been trying to mount a legal challenge against my former employer who actually i found out recently that the company went under uh pretty abruptly so when when i left we were in a clinical trial i had we brought up uh, an antibody to to trial it was actually the second one during the time I was there. And uh, it seemed to be going reasonably well, although I, I had certain uh, doubts about certain parts of it, but um, something happened and they, they seem to abruptly wind down and, sh you know, so that, that's been a complication with this, this whole process. Wow. Um, that that's so, it. Yeah. So that just kind of happened um, quickly out of nowhere, and and there's not an entity to bring the the suit toward. 
Is that well, that's kind of been the issue is trying to figure out how to navigate that with in light of that. Um, so supposedly, according to my my attorney, that there are still there is still a path because um, they have to be able to respond to, you know, any a legal challenge, I guess. But mm-hmm. I, I don't understand the intricacies of that stuff. So. <laughs> So tell us a bit about um, your research into peer review. Yeah, I mean, as a scientist who's certainly read well more than my fair share of, of papers throughout my career and also published a few, um, you know, I've gotten to see the peer review process up up front and center. And, um, you know, it's definitely one of those things where we hear the word peer review and you kind of come up with an idea of how it's supposed to work because ideally, you know, the the goal is to put your research out there so other scientists can review it, perhaps try to reproduce it. You know, you want to put it out there in the public domain as a, as a means to, to validate it. And except for, and so of course, in, in accordance with that, then we look at peer review and we think, oh, so this is a process by which we're formally reviewing this information, this data that's being published, and it's by our peers, except for it's it's anything but. The reviewers are chosen by the editors of the journals, and the journals themselves are funded in a lot of cases by pharma companies or other interests like that. And so it winds up not being very much of an open process at all. Um, and you can get a lot of disparity between reviewers. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of scientists want to find reviewers that will go easy on them, you know, that won't do, won't give them. And I, and that's something that always kind of caught me off guard was I think you want somebody that's going to really meticulously review this thing because you know, you, you want to make sure that you're publishing something that has some merits to it. But unfortunately, that's that's not the case. And, you know, one of the surprising things I think people don't realize with peer review is that there's no element of peer review where the, the data is actually verified. It's all on the, the authors that are submitting the, the papers for review. It's entirely assumed that they've done the work to verify whatever they're putting forward, whatever the findings are that they're publishing on. And so it's usually not even, you you don't send raw data, you don't send anything to where that the reviewers actually checking that. They just say, okay, the, the authors have done their due diligence, I guess. And, you know, we just accept it. And then they, you know, look at the data and stuff like that and make sure that it, you know, I guess that it's somewhat backs that up, but then, then you find out that there's um, a lot of problems with peer-reviewed papers <laughs> that nobody wants to talk about either. <laughs> so, you know, in in your research of this, you found that that an amazing percentage of of these papers had you know problems with them or were um, put forward somewhat fraudulently. Um, can you explain, you know, where where that came from and how that came about? Yeah. So. Um... In I think it was 2004. So a uh, 
an epidemiologist by the name of John Ioannidis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He he put out this, you know, it's a basically become a landmark essay um, about it was in, I think it was entitled "Why Most Published Research Findings Are False," and he really kind of boldly and audaciously went and outlined all these reasons that these these factors that in, can increase the probability that a given finding is false or decrease the probability that it's true. And then, you know, made the claim that it, if, if scrutinized, it would turn out that the majority of findings in published scientific papers would be more likely to be false than true. I mean, it's, it's quite shocking. And, and this extends across pretty much every scientific discipline when you really look at it. And so a number of years, few years later, actually, a number of groups, big companies actually started to put numbers to this and say, just how hard is it to, to prove that a finding is true? And, and even the CDC came out in response to Ioannidis' paper. They, there was a group that actually put out a commentary in response and said, you know, one of the ways, one of the best ways to increase the likelihood that a finding is false is to to reproduce it, to, you know, to be able to demonstrate replication of the finding. Which well, is it turns exactly out... what you want to do, right? I mean, <laughs> right. You, you would want to be able to verify it by replicating it. That's what the entire peer review process is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for it turns out that most studies can't be replicated. So even there, I mean, that would be great. And if you could replicate them, and there's multiple different ways you can do that, but that can't, I mean... There's been formal studies where groups have attempted to replicate and stack the deck by picking papers from what are known as high impact journals, where these are like science and nature, where they're, you would think that, that you would have a higher chance of reproducing them based on the impact, the stature of the journal. But no, it didn't matter. There, there, there was one group from Amgen. This is a big biotech company that, that took like 53 of these papers, mostly in oncology, and could only um, replicate, forget what the number was, but it but it came down to like only 9%. So wow. almost 90% couldn't be replicated. I think it was six they were able to replicate out of the the 53. Yeah, it was shocking. Um, and and other groups have seen similar similar issues. And the whole thing stemmed because they saw so in industry and biotech and pharma one of the things you're, you have to do is constantly keep your pipeline well oiled and, and well supplied and so you have these groups that are just dedicated to finding new targets to go and try to you know conjure up new diseases new targets new things to to develop drugs against and one of the ways they do that is you go and you look in the literature and you see what's being done in academia and other things you know and you try to generate ideas from that well some of these companies started realizing that, uh, that they, as part of the process, they first um, try to reproduce those findings before they spend a ton of money and develop drugs on them. And they started finding, we can't reproduce any of these findings. <laughs> what the heck is going on? So, you know, one company actually did a survey of their scientists in this group and found out, you know, like they said that 80 something percent couldn't be 
reproduced. And then Amgen, this big biotech, actually did a formal study. And like I said, almost 90% couldn't be reproduced. And then there was this, um, it was called the Reproducibility Project or something like that, where they attempted <laughs> to do a whole bunch of papers. And I think they ran out of funding or something like that. But I mean, everywhere it's been attempted, it, it, it's been shown that this is a huge, huge issue. And I saw this, this isn't even something that I am saying, well, I've researched this in some papers. I encountered this my entire career personally and other peers in the lab had issue, had huge issues reproducing data because I always tried to do the same thing, coming up with ideas, saying, well, I got to reproduce this other thing first before I try to do something, you know, put my own spin on it. And so, so many times that just couldn't be done. Wow. So, you know, just going back into, you know, um, thinking about those times and, and all of these different um, studies that you're trying to make heads or tails of and you're, you're looking through what they've got and you're, um, you're trying to reproduce this and you can't and you're realizing at this time, you know, how many of these, you know, is this happening to you? Like, were you aware of, of these other studies at the time that they were happening and that, that like all of this coincided? No, I, I actually only came across like the the kind of formalized studies a, a bit later. I had I had observed very early on in my career, even back when I was doing HIV research, that uh, that papers were not reproducing. Um, we would we would be very frustrated, about, you know, trying to reproduce papers, you know. So even as a young scientist, I was like, OK, this this isn't just me being a naive young scientist not being able to do this because you know other people were having the same issues where you're trying to and part of the issue is um you know the way that papers are written and and that's a to me a big thing because they're written for the scientific community but they're also written for so the peer review process it might not be peers but the papers are written explicitly to their peers in not even just other scientists, but like, so in oncology, it's other people in oncology or even subdivided there, you know, in immuno-oncology or whatever. So if you're not in those disciplines, it, you know, there's a lot of things that like you're, even as a scientist, you might not be able to make heads or tails of, especially when you get into the methodology, they take a lot of liberties in terms of how stuff is uh, articulated. And then you have a lot of weird things where it's cited back to previous papers. And I've spent a tremendous amount of time trying to find things and going back and back and back and back and back. And it's like an endless tale of, you know, things where you never find out, okay, how did they originally do what they're claiming they did? So a big issue is just the way things are worded and how it's being communicated and then a kind of a lack of information in terms of the actual methodology, the um, the the materials and things that were used. You know, one lab being able to properly source the same things, but that should tell you something. If if you get something that's similar but not the exact same lot or whatever, and you can't reproduce the finding, well, then how strong was the finding in the first place? Right. And then if I mean, you're looking at it in terms of um, just even trying to make those um, those results come back and then you're you're tracing it back like what you're saying. So you're taking the um, 
the footnotes and the bibliography within the paper of the other papers that they've pulled that information from and you're trying to make heads or tails of that how far back does that go where we would have to reproduce what that was built upon what that was built upon and all the way webbing back how far back does that go it, it can go quite a ways back depending on the subject matter depending on the the, the technique or method that you're that you're looking for and and how far back it was developed by a given group or just in general in in the the that particular discipline or whatever you know but um yeah so that's a that's a significant problem is you're, you're trying to dig back through all of these things and you know when you want to think about like what the heck is the concept so what okay some because there are people that are that it's it struck me that a lot of scientists actually are aware of this the big problem is you know there's there's absolutely no incentive to actually do anything about it so a lot of them just say oh well it doesn't mean that the data is wrong or that the system's flawed or that the you know they're like okay so we couldn't but but i think it's important to understand to put it in context like it's not just that we you can't reproduce a finding or that a paper is um you know, that something is more likely to be false than not. Every paper has all of these citations and things, and that's what underpins the paper and kind of gives it its relevance. It it, it kind of on the background connects dots and like this, where you're you have um, a chain of citations to a particular method where for whatever reason, they're not detailing it in that given paper, but they're saying, OK, go back and check this is what we did prior, you know, and you have to go find it. Well, if every one of those papers is is also questionable or can't be reproduced, then your whole thing, it's like a house of cards. And these papers, you know, in many cases are being used to drive drug development programs to, um, you know, generate uh, design clinical trials so if you're publishing things that you're not sure about that are potentially not valid that haven't been reproduced and you go to design a clinical trial and you get approval and you go into the clinic you're then putting your experimental drug into very well commonly especially in oncology very sick people and you have no idea you know in reality you're going in blind which actually is a whole nother thing but <laughs> um so so how how would we even go about unraveling all of that and taking all of that apart and and going back far enough that we know that we're standing on top of solid research how do we even figure that out yeah yeah i mean it's a considerable challenge because i mean who wants to go back and try to reproduce every paper that that has ever been done um but i think we also need to resist the urge to just throw it all away and start from scratch too and just say, well, it's all false Let, or, or let's assume it's all false. And so we'll just trash it um, because I think there there likely is some truth in there. It's just how do we find that? And that's I think I mean, certainly trying to do it agnostically and just go at it from the whole like that's a massive endeavor that nobody's ever going to do. I think we have to kind of pick the the areas that are relevant and important, you know, especially, you know, now we're looking at 
COVID and viruses and all this stuff and hone in on those and try to see if we can drill down and find any solid ground or not. I mean, and, and make decisions as we go. So even, you know, in in your background in looking at HIV and now um, in your research into COVID and seeing, you know, what's there and what's not there and, and also, you know, um, working alongside all of the other people who are doing this type of, of research and activism right now. Can you tell me a bit about that as well? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a lot of people that are talking about health freedom, that are, you know, talking about a whole wide range of things as it pertains to COVID, whether it's, um, you know, the the public policy stuff that, that went down, the the masking and the, the distancing and all of that stuff, all the way through to the the, the treatments that were pushed out and the the jabs and the and the other things, and then the mandates that were imposed to to force those on people and um, and the injuries from the, the treatments and the jabs, and then even questioning the provenance of the pandemic itself, was there actually a viral causation of the pandemic, you know? Um, and so there, there are people that are questioning things across a pretty wide spectrum. And I think it's really good and really important to ask a lot of questions. It's been um exciting to see people with a lot of different backgrounds that are willing to to put in the time and effort to ask difficult questions and do do what i think is challenging research and you know it kind of shows that anybody can do this stuff if they if they so are willing and willing and willing to put the time in um because it's it's really important and um we, we need to arm ourselves with with information to push back against against these things. And so, you know, to that end, the crucial importance of information, I've recently been part of putting together a massive summit that is going to go through a lot of those things that I just mentioned. Um, I guess you could say the core of it is perhaps virology, but it hits on a lot of a lot of those elements of um the, the questions that have been asked around COVID and it, it's called the end of COVID. It's got, I think 90 sessions now it's, it's a massive amount of information. And, um, I, I think it's going to be really powerful because that's, that's it. It's not about, I don't want to say, um, you know, there are some people that, you know, I don't know, they're, that, that you kind of use a, the language of talking about it as uh, like an educational materials or something. I think we need to be careful about the education. We don't want to make anybody think we're trying to re-educate anybody. I, I think just information is is powerful. And, and I mean, of course, how you use it. But in this case, it's a tremendous amount of information that's, that's being put together that I'm very honored to have been a part of. Um, and it's going to be launching in july on july 11th um and it's going to be streaming for free the first 21 days and so uh i hope that people will will definitely tune in because it's again it's an incredible amount of information to hear part two of this interview please subscribe at starfirecodes.com <laughs>